0: All right, let's make our way to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. We're coming into chapter 8 tonight and continuing in our study through this book. And uh, uh, chapter 8, we're going to look at verse 1 down through verse number 9. And uh, the title of the message is Responding Wisely to Authority. Responding Wisely to Authority. So let's read our text and then we'll uh, dig into the study together. You notice that Solomon says in verse 1, he says, Who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt, and we think about this text, and one of the, well, really the central theme and subject is that of authority uh, in life under the sun. Now, we think about authority. How many of us have ever interacted with authority? Well, the answer would be every single one of us. We all relate to authority in this world in some way, and God designed authority, uh, and we ought to praise Him for that because without authority, there would be no order in the world. There would only be chaos and anarchy and um, just just very unstructured uh, way of life. And so, responding to authority uh, relates to all of us in various uh, various categories of life. We see it everywhere. Um, where do we first experience authority? Well, we first experience it in the home, don't we? Children are under the authority of their parents. Parents are not under the authority of their children. Many have that upside down in today's culture where. Children basically rule the home, right? That's not how God set it up. So that means parents, they have the say-so over, what, uh, over the children, not the other way around. And so uh, for further examples, you might think of teachers or principals in school. They would have an authority, you know, over governing the school and watching over the kids. You know, I remember one time as a young boy, I had gotten into trouble. I was in elementary school, and I don't even remember what happened. Um, But it was so bad, the teacher said, all right, go to the principal's office. And if you're in school, you know that the principal's office is like the place to be feared, right? And as a young boy, man, that was the scariest thing that had ever happened to me. I can't remember. I was probably fourth grade or fifth grade or something like that. And um, I knew that I was going to the authority of the whole school. But not only that, I also knew that they were going to call an even bigger authority. You know who that authority is, right? Right. Mama and daddy, right? And, and so I knew that I was accountable not only to the principal and our teachers, but also mom and dad. And, and so I had reverence for their authority. It was something to be respected. Beyond the home and school, we deal with authority in our jobs as we relate to our bosses and those who are up over us. Uh, we, we relate to in our community, law enforcement and the laws of the land, Uh, But above all other authorities in the world, every one of us, including the authorities in this world, have a greater authority to answer to, and that authority is God. He is the chief authority over all others. Now, authority is an intricate aspect of life under the sun. You cannot escape that reality. And so Solomon, in this passage, he's bringing our attention to that authority of a king, and this relates to him directly. He knows exactly about all this. In Solomon's context, so I think it's important to keep this in mind as you come through this text, in his context, in his day and time, he is referring to an autocratic form of government, a king, okay? Uh, and this means there's one ruler. He's the one who's in charge. He made the decisions based on what he thought was best. And so someone in Solomon's day, and well, much of history actually, definitely needed wisdom in relating to the authorities over them, especially that of the king. If they responded wrongly, that could mean great consequence. So responding rightly means that it could be their life at stake in that day and time. It wasn't like our government in the United States where we have different branches of government and there's somewhat of a a balance of power. Uh, Even though we have a single president, a single leader, he's not without or should not be without accountability to our constitution and uh, the other elected officials, the other forms of government that we have in our in place. So we're, we should be thankful for that. But understand, as we come through this passage, it is one of the more difficult texts uh, to to really dissect and, and even translate. That's one reason I took an extra week to kind of deal with it, because uh, I got up Wednesday morning last week and thought, man, I got this figured out. And then I started digging deeper, and I thought, man, I don't have this figured out. And so sometimes the preacher just has to put the brakes on and, and give a little more space to dissect and, and, and evaluate the text. So notice with me, number one tonight, is really one heading, and we'll come look at these subpoints. points, uh, earthly authorities must be wisely reverenced. And notice with me, letter A, the display of wisdom with authority, the display of wisdom with authority. Now, as you read chapter 7, it flows into chapter 8 here, and this verse really serves as a connecting bridge for chapter 7 and chapter 8. Um, it serves as a a great bridge between the two. Um, It can be taken in regards to the previous passage, and many do, and it also uh, lays the foundation for the text that follows. So what does he say here in verse 1? He asks two questions, who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? Now, remember, as he closed out chapter 7, he gave us this insight that Wisdom is very rare among people. It's a rare thing to see and rare thing to find. Now, what does wisdom do and how is it seen? Well, Solomon's question here presents that wisdom gives interpretation of something or discernment of something. So wisdom has an insight. Wisdom has a a, a perspective that gives a proper interpretation of a particular thing. And so those who are wise are able to understand and apply what's needed For certain situations and circumstances, Um, you can almost—if you take it in reference to chapter seven—you can almost view it as if Solomon's asking, "Where is the man who can discern all these problems he detailed in chapter seven and God's providence in them? Who can discern these things?" And so, we also may view it as as a question of the wise in relation to what's coming in this text with authority, and so. We think about wisdom and its display and recognizing it. Do we have any examples of someone or some people who had this kind of wisdom in the Bible, particularly in relation to authority, kingly authority? Well, we have a lot of examples of this, actually, uh, several. But the ones that come to my mind, very plain and simple, would be Daniel and the other three Hebrew boys, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We know the story of Daniel and these three Hebrew boys, how they were carried off from their homeland and taken to a pagan land. And uh, when Nebuchadnezzar, the king with all power and authority over them, placed before them meats that they should not eat according to God's law, Daniel and his friends, they refused but in a very wise manner. Wisdom governed them and he gave them an alternate solution. Daniel presented an alternative to their situation. And as a result of this, this revealed the wisdom in them, and it really caught the eye of Nebuchadnezzar and the people of Babylon. In Daniel 1, 19 through 20, it says, The king spoke with them. Among all of them, none was found, like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Those are the Hebrew names of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Their names are given in, in the uh, Babylonian names later. But it says, Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. So Nebuchadnezzar views these men as more wise, ten times more wise, than even his best men that he has in his own kingdom. Now this ties into what Solomon says next in verse 1. He says, a man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. Well, what is meant by this statement? Well, a shining face has sometimes been understood to have favor from someone or upon something. Moses' message from the Lord to Israel was, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. That's one way of looking at it. But this text speaks of the wise man who is visibly gracious, And gentle in his demeanor. Now, have you ever heard the expression, it's written all over their face. It's written all over their face. You see, our face and the expressions of our face often reveal a lot about us, especially in a particular moment. Now we're we're trying to teach Spurgeon. He's at the age where he can learn some things that he ought not to do, right? And so we're trying to teach him about certain things. Don't get into this cabinet. No, no, Spurgeon. And uh, so every now and then, we'll hear him rustling around. We we weren't in the room previously, and I heard him rustling around in something, and I snuck in there without him realizing I was there, right, just to see what he was getting into. And he was pulling out jars and breakables, you know, things he wasn't supposed to. And uh, I just lean over him. I say, what are you doing? (laughs) And the the expression on his face, he looks up at me like, oh, you're here. (laughs) Even at a young age, he knew because we've been teaching him. You're not supposed to be getting into this. Just the expression revealed, he knew. And there was an expression of guilt and surprise kind of at the same time. Everybody has a certain countenance in their expressions. And those, those are going to vary throughout the day, right? Depending on what we're thinking about, what we're going through, what we're experiencing. Uh, but in this experience here, we see wisdom. Wisdom is something that, that it shows itself outwardly. And we can see a little bit of that in Proverbs Um, For example, a glad heart makes a cheerful face, but sorrow of the heart, the spirit is crushed. That's one example of of our expression showing what's inside of us. Um, And so for this wise person with the countenance on their face that indicates wisdom within, Solomon says the hardness of his face is changed. The wise man has a gentleness in his expression contrary to someone who is maybe bold-faced because they're bold-faced trying to maybe cover up Uh, their wickedness or their ways, or maybe trying to present themselves a way that is not true of themselves. So the display of wisdom in their countenance, it was somewhat needed, especially in that day and time when the king even did not want a bad countenance in their presence. That was something very important in that day and time as you read Nehemiah. But notice with me letter B tonight. We see the decision of wisdom with authority, and this is where more of the meat comes in. This is Really, the bulk of it is in this this point here, in the next few verses. He speaks directly about the authority, particularly of a king in his day, which which he was very well acquainted with as a king himself. In verse 2, he says, I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Now, this text, and along with others in this passage, has had varying interpretation and translation due to the Hebrew underneath. And so this was one where there was, there's, some, there's some various interpretation. I'll give you the, the two main main things that come out here. Some interpret this as keep, as if keep refers to protecting or watching over the words of the king. In other words, the preacher's reminding someone who would be the king's counselor that he's obligated to help counsel the king and guard the king from... Uh, making foolish decision on behalf of his oath to God. That's one way of seeing that. Others interpret this in more of a plain sense of being careful and on guard of what the king's command is so that you obey it. You need to pay attention to what the king says uh, in order to obey the words of the king. And for what reason? Because of God's oath to him. What does God's oath to him refer to? That's part of the tricky part of this text. It's one of those things where translations render it differently. For example, some translations render it in a more general sense, as we see here. This is the ESV, the LSB, and NASB, and the KJV would render it this way because of his oath to God. So in this case, um, it would refer to the oath that is made by the king in taking the kingly office in God's name. That would have been customary in Israel. They're taking an oath before God that they are the king of Israel. Now, you think, for example, in our own nation, our president is sworn in on what? On an oath with his hand on the Bible to carry out the Constitution and to uphold the rule of law. And the very end of it is, so help me God, right? And so that's, that's a form of an oath. Other translations render this in a different way. It's, they call it, your oath made before God to the reader. You'll see that in the CSB, the NKJV, and it's an alternative reading in in the ESV, in the footnotes. But this would refer to the audience Solomon is talking to, which implies the king's subjects, especially those close to him who might have taken an oath of loyalty to this king, that they're by oath to be loyal to the king before God. Now, Solomon experienced a little bit of this kind of an oath being broken by one of his followers, one that was with him. 1 Kings 2, 20, 43, Solomon says to uh, Shimei, Why then have you not kept your oath to the Lord and the commandment which I commanded you? This particular man had broken an oath before God and before Solomon. So we think about maybe even lower officials in government and law enforcement. They take an oath before God to uphold the Constitution, kind of similar to the president, to keep, uh, to keep it and, and to follow it. So that's just the varying interpretations of that text. I want to bring those out to you. But here's what I want to point out, is that regardless of which interpretation you take with this phrasing, the principle is that the authority in place should be honored and obeyed because it is God who has ordained that authority, even in the kings of Israel. Now isn't that principle, isn't that principle seen even in the New Testament? Absolutely it is. Now let's let's go to Romans chapter number 13 for a moment, this is probably the more uh, detailed text laying this out, kind of the principle Solomon's bringing out. But before that, Paul told Titus th- this. He told him to teach the church in Titus 3, 1 through 2. He said, "...remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people." So he wants Titus to teach the church how they ought to respond and respect authority. Paul gives greater detail in Romans. Now, listen to this. Romans 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So you come through that text and what do you realize about authority and the Christian's response? God has ordained the authorities in this world, hasn't he? It's of him. He says there's no authority except it be of God. So God's ordained these authorities in the world, whether it be the king or whatever government we're under, for the purpose of, he says, you're good. So you think about this, without a governing authority over the land, there would be chaos and anarchy. And even when there is a governing authority over the land, there still sometimes is chaos and anarchy if the government's not doing its job to establish law and order and justice. So as you read this text, you see what the government exists to be and how we ought to relate to it. Governing authorities should function as the servant of God to bring forth justice, but as we know, that's not always what happens, is it? We find, oftentimes, we see evil governments in the world, evil, evil dictatorships. I mean, you just you look at North Korea, for example. I mean, that Christianity is basically outlawed there, and uh, the laws are tyrannical; they're evil. Um, you look at our own nation; we have a lot better form of government. But even still, there's a lot of flaws in it, isn't there? There is a lack of righteousness and justice and, and, and what, is, what is right. And, and so we, we keep this in mind. Now, I think it's also important to bear in mind that the early church that Paul's writing to, did they have a great godly government over them? They sure didn't. You think about tyrants like Nero and some of the Roman rulers. I mean, these were some evil, wicked people that eventually brought persecution to Christianity. And so Paul's kind of showing them, showing them what what governing rulers should be, but he also shows them how they ought to act within them. And I'll bring out more of that in just a moment. Um, kind of on the flip side, when you have an ungodly government and what they're doing. Uh, but here's a, here's another example. First Peter chapter number two and verse thirteen through seventeen. First Peter chapter two and verse thirteen through seventeen. Peter writes to these Christians, and these Christians they're they're suffering too, and. They don't have a good government over them, but here's what he he tells them in 1 Peter 2 and verse 13. He says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor or the king. So Peter's telling them the same thing Paul's saying. You need to have a a God-given honor and respect for those in power. So that brings us to what Solomon's saying here. What's he saying? in this? He says, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Now, he continues in this in verse 3. And notice what he says. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Now, keep in mind the day and time we're talking about, all right? The very act of being able to stand before the king was a high honor and privilege. Not everybody got to do that, right? Much like it would be for someone to visit the Oval Office and meet with the President. Not many of us probably desire to even do that right now, but uh, that's considered a high honor, right? It's it's, it's considered a high honor. Nobody can just waltz up into the Oval Office, right? That's a high honor and privilege to be able to be there. So what's Solomon saying here? One should recognize the reverence they should have for the king, and they should not be quick to react towards the king with disrespect Especially, if you're in his presence, hastily leaving because of disagreement or frustration. That would be an act of dishonor, and it would signify disloyalty to the king, the governing authority. Now, sometimes children show this same kind of disrespect for their parental authority. We've had times when we've been giving correction or instruction to one or both of our children, and they didn't really like it, or they were upset or fussy about it and uh, they begin to walk out of the room before we even finish what we're saying. I me tell you one thing. That's a big no-no when it comes to mom and dad, right? I did that once on my parents, and I remember that doesn't work out too good. <laughs> uh, that doesn't work out too good. Uh, I learned that when I was a kid. Mom and dad, they're the authority, and children need to recognize that. They need to listen to mom and dad because they are the ones over them. Well, that same principle applies to all other forms of authority, like even the workplace. If your boss calls you in and he's needs to give you instruction and talk to you, you don't storm out while he's talking to you or, or storm out in a fuss because you don't like what he's saying. You may disagree with what he's saying, and you might be right to disagree with what he's saying, but your response towards him should still show respect, still show honor for his position. And, and so this is what we see. Just We can apply it to a broad range of authority uh, aspects in our life. Now, in the context of this king... Not departing in haste would uh, be especially important if you were one of the king's counselors or his servants. To go from the king's presence in such a way would signify to him great disloyalty, which may mean you're not going to make it much longer in that day and time. Now notice what Solomon says next in verse 3. Solomon says in verse 3, he says, Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. Now, The action of taking your stand in evil cause does not refer to resisting a moral evil. That's not what he's talking about. This evil cause would be willfully standing against the king's decisions because you disagree with it or uh, you don't like it. It would be synonymous with rebellion. In other words, when we we look at this, we see that kings, they're going to make foolish decisions, aren't they? Why is that? We live in a fallen world. There's not any king or ruler who's going to be perfect. And most of them are great sinners, if you look at them. We've seen plenty of stupid decisions made by world leaders over and over, including from the United States. Nevertheless, Solomon says, especially with an autocratic ruler in mind, given the context here, don't stand in the way of the king's will, what he wants to do. Why? Because he does whatever he pleases. He's the one who has the power. He's the one who has the authority. You see, kings in Solomon's day did whatever they wanted. There were were very few, if any, checks and balances to their power. And so Solomon, he emphasizes this further in verse 4. Look at this. Verse 4, he says, For the word of the king is what? Supreme. That's the highest word there is in the land. Supreme. And who may say to him, What are you doing? See, Solomon's reminding of the sovereignty of the king's word in that day. Now, you may look and see at some of the power of the king that Samuel lays out for the Israelite king in 1 Samuel 8, 10 through 18. You can go read that later, but he lays out what the king would have power to do and what he will do. So he has power, and he can use that power as he pleases, and if the king's mind is made up, the king is going to do what he wants, even if that's a wrong act or even a sinful act. Do we have an example of a king who had a command or had a desire that was sinful and he had someone say something to him? Say, hey, this probably ain't right, but he did it anyway. The man after God's own heart, King David. You remember he came up on the roof one day when he was idle. He should have been out with, 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 with his soldiers. But he's there at his king's palace, idle. He goes onto the roof and he sees Bathsheba bathing. And she's a beautiful woman and uh, that catches his eye. And so what's he do? He, sends his inqu- he inquires about the woman. In 2 Samuel eleven three. 3, David sent and inquired about the woman. But notice this, one said, so this comes to David's ears. One said to David, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? In other words, this person is calmly just presenting a question to David. Isn't this somebody's wife? Isn't this somebody's wife? But what did David do? We know the end of the story. He persisted anyway. He went and had her and ended up uh, having an affair which, which came about through a, uh, which produced a pregnancy, then produced a murder, and a whole mess of things for David. So this just shows you many kings gave sinful commands, and, and many people had little power to stop them. Now Solomon points out the proper response for someone under the authority of a king, a wise response in a sense in verse 5. Notice he says, Whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing. In other words, obey the governing authority or else you're going to probably face some consequences. You're going to face some consequences. Now this principle, it applies to every form of government. What happens if you speed down the road to an 80 and a 55 and the police catches you? You're going to have to pay the consequences, usually a fine, right? What happens if you rob the supermarket? You're probably going to go to jail. What happens if you refuse to pay your taxes? You're going to be in lots of trouble. Consequences are part of what happens when it comes to authority and the commands that are in place. Now, wisdom makes the decision to reverence the governing authorities and obey the necessary commands of them. Solomon says in Proverbs 21, 21 and 22, this This father-like figure is telling his son, he says, My son, fear the Lord and the king, and do not join with those that do otherwise, for disaster will arise suddenly from them. For who knows, and who knows the ruin that will come from them both? You know, we find even in the days of Jesus, one of the uh, challenges brought to Jesus was, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? This was an intentional setup. We're going to catch Jesus in his words. They even... You know, butter Jesus up. We know that what you say is true. So let us ask you this question. Is it right to give honor to Caesar? Is it right to pay to Caesar? And Jesus said, bring, bring a denarii, the coin of that day. Whose face is on it? And they said, well, it's Caesar's face. And here's, was, here's what Jesus' response was in Matthew twenty two twenty one: Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Guess what? They didn't have an answer for what he said. They couldn't catch him in his words. Jesus just gives out the balance of living in that kind of environment. So, in short, the decision of wisdom is to reverence authority and obey authority in all possible times. Now, that brings me to letter C, which I think is a very important qualifier for obeying authority. Notice with me the discernment of wisdom with authority. The discernment of wisdom with authority. He now brings up a wise person who is able to discern certain times and ways to do things under the king's authority. Now, in relation to obeying the king, Solomon says in verse 5, the last part of this verse, he says, And the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. Will know the proper time and the just way. Doesn't wisdom, by its very nature, give us the understanding of knowing what to do and when to do it and the right way to do it. See, wisdom really ties in more than just with knowledge, but also how to apply that knowledge, what to do with that knowledge, right? And, and so this applies to this person in relation with authority and their commands to obey. While under a sovereign king, the subjects under him are called to carry out his command, but they also there's also the need for discerning the command and how best to obey it. Submission is not to be just blind passivity. We have some examples of those who had wise discernment when it came to authorities over them. And I think I put those in your notes just to give you examples. You remember a man named Jonathan in the Old Testament, the best friend of David. They were closer than brothers. Jonathan in 1 Samuel 19, 4 through 6, at this time, Saul wants to kill King David. Well, he's anointed king, but he's not the official king yet. He wants to kill David. He views David as a threat to his throne, as a as a thorn in his side. But, but Jonathan, Jonathan, with his wisdom, talks to his father and shows him why he should not kill King David. So the king wanted to do one thing. Jonathan, with wisdom, convinces his dad not to do this thing, at least temporarily. And then once, he, once King Saul was going to do it anyway, Jonathan had to go against his own dad in that, in that thing, in that event. Another example, Nathan the prophet has wisdom. In 2 Samuel 12, he comes to David after David has committed this sin with Bathsheba and had Uriah the Hittite murdered. And, and now he's having a baby with a woman that he wasn't married to. And so Nathan the prophet is sent by the Lord to come to David and he comes in a very wise manner. He presents him a story. That really corners David into giving himself his own verdict. Wisdom is what he had in approaching the authority, King David. What about Esther? Esther's a wonderful account. If you've never read it, read it. It's a wonderful account. Esther had wisdom in revealing Haman's evil plan to the king in Esther 7, 1 through 6. That was a somewhat dangerous thing. Nehemiah had wisdom in his words coming to King Artaxerxes in a pagan land requesting leave to go back and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem in Nehemiah 2, verse 1 through 8. In all these accounts, you'll see wisdom in how they approach the authority and deal with the authority. So wisdom is greatly needed in discerning it and seeing how to best obey it or even making requests. Now, here's something else I want to point out. Not only do we need wisdom in discerning what we need to do and how to do it, because sometimes commands are... You think, well, is this really what he meant, or is this really what this means? There are other times when disobeying the command of authority is absolutely necessary. Absolutely necessary. What if the laws of the land or the law of the king goes in violation of the law of God? What if the king or the president or congress you know, outlaws the preaching of the gospel? What if they outlaw the reading of the scriptures? What if they outlaw the gathering of the saints? What should the Christian do in such a a time? Absolutely disobey those commands. Absolutely disobey those commands. See, wisdom would say to resist such authority and have a higher fear of God than you do an earthly king, understanding what the true nature of the king should be. Do we have examples of that? Absolutely. I mentioned a couple just a minute ago, but here's here's a different account for them. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they had the wisdom and courage that when Nebuchadnezzar said, everybody bow before this golden statue and worship, or else you're going to be thrown into a fiery furnace, they had the wisdom and courage to be the only three still standing. Everybody gets down and worships, and there they're standing. They didn't care what Nebuchadnezzar was going to do to them, or could do to them. As we read the story, we know they were right, right? Jesus was with them in the fire. We think of Daniel. Daniel had the wisdom and courage to defy the edict of King Darius that commanded, put into law, that no prayer could be made to any other god for 30 days. Well, Daniel knows about this edict, this law, and what's he do? He goes into his house and he prays three times a day, just like he always did. He was thrown into the lion's den for that, But that didn't matter. The Lord rescued him from that. The apostles had the wisdom and courage to disobey the command from the Jerusalem leaders when they were commanded, quit preaching Jesus. Quit preaching this Jesus. Well, we read this account in Acts 5, 27 through 29. Look at this in your notes. When they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But I love Peter's response here. What's Peter's response? We must obey God rather than men. That, friend, is wisdom. That is courage. That is faith. And so as Christians, we need wisdom in responding to the governing authorities in this world. We need to recognize their authority, honor it, As God says to honor it, but we also need to resist it when it goes against that which God has ordained for us. Now Solomon continues this line of thought in verse 6. He says, For there's a time and way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. See, Solomon's already shown us in the book that there's a time and season for everything. Wisdom helps us to discern the right time for doing certain things when responding to authority even when a person's trouble or that burden is heavy on them about what to do. Now, this trouble upon a man may be heavy because they don't know how the king's going to respond. They don't know how the authority is going to respond, whether that be giving him alternative counsel to his thinking or disobeying his direct command. You never know what's going to happen as a result of it. Thus, Solomon says, for he does not know what is to be, For who can tell him how it will be? Now, you can imagine maybe the burden sitting on Nehemiah's heart as he approaches King Artaxerxes. He has a sad face, which he should not have in the king's presence. He approaches King Artaxerxes, and King Artaxerxes notices and says, Nehemiah, what's going on? And Nehemiah wisely and courageously shares with him his burden for the walls of Jerusalem. God in his providence grants him access to go do that. Same thing for Esther. The burden upon Esther approaching the king. The king on, the, on behalf of the plot of Haman to kill her people. What would be the end result of those requests? Now we know because we have the whole account, but they didn't in the moment. Imagine the trouble that was heavy on them. Yet in their wisdom, they still responded to the authority the way they ought to have at that moment. So that, that wraps up what we see here with, with this. Wisdom gives a person the right discernment in responding to authority, and that's something we all need. Now, notice with me letter D as he kind of closes out this this little section here on this kingly authority. Notice with me the drawback for all who are in authority. You know, he's continuing to speak about this, but he presents what appears to be limitations to even the authority and power of a king. Every king and every authority in this world has power that is limited. They can only do so much. And in verse 8, notice he says, No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. Now, this is another text here where there's a couple different translations for this Hebrew phrase. It could mean there is no man who has power over the wind, to restrain the wind. The word for wind and spirit are often the same Hebrew word. While others say here the power to retain the spirit. But in either translation, the principle is the same, demonstrating the limitation of the power of the king. He can't restrain the wind, if that's what he's meant, nor does he have power to restrain the spirit in death, which I think is probably what Solomon's alluding to. What happens when a person dies? What makes death death? The body's still here, but the spirit has left the body. It has departed that is what death is. That is what the event of death is. And, and so nobody can restrain or keep their spirit once death has come, once it's time to die. There's only one person who could have done that. His name is Jesus. And I, think it, I find it so fascinating. As you read, he's on the cross dying, and it comes to the point, point. he says, it's finished. The Bible says that he yielded up the ghost, yielded up his spirit. He offered his life. <laughs> offered his life in death. He didn't have to do that, but he did it. He's the only one who wasn't, wasn't bound to die by, because of sin nature. He took sin on himself so that he could die for us. But all other men, their day of death is certain and cannot be avoided. Now Solomon will expound more on death in chapter 9, but the king here, who is a man of power in his position, when it comes to, die, comes to dying, he has no power over the day of his death. None whatsoever. Job rightly put it that way in John fourteen five. He said, since his days are determined and the number of his months is with you, and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. Talking about the fact that we can't go past our day of death. So what power does a king have at the time of his death? None. None. There's an ancient rabbi who observed once that David, he's called King David 52 times. But in 1 Kings 2.1, when David's life is drawing to a close, he's just called David. (laughs) Just David. The kingship's going to be passed on to Solomon. David didn't have any more authority as king once he's meeting the grave. He also says in verse 8, There's no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. This discharge from war typically refers to the release of a wounded or furloughed soldier and it seems that in his analogy, he's using it in reference to death itself, which is possible. Such a discharge will not be granted on the day of death, even for the king. He goes on to say, wickedness, that also ain't going to deliver you. That's not going to deliver him. Wickedness never delivers. And so Solomon says in verse 9, all this I observed while applying my heart, to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. So that's the bookend of the context in a sense. He's observed when man has power over man to his hurt, the authority that is in the world. And what that is, it's a reality of life under the sun. So the reality of kingly power and authority in life under the sun is something we relate to, something we experience in different forms. And what we see through this is that there is wisdom needed in relating to all of it. So we need to recognize the powers that be, they are ordained and given by God, but we also need to seek wisdom in order to rightly respond to those powers at any given moment. And so that really is the message, that really is all of it summed up in the whole. So I pray that this can give us some insight, a reminder of this great truth that Solomon presents to us, and we can take it and apply it to our life.